Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the KPMG Private Enterprise Insights for Entrepreneurs podcast. My name is Barry O'Connell, a partner in KPMG Ireland. Today we'll be discussing Ireland and our sustainable future. I'm delighted to welcome John Mullins, Executive Chairman of Amarinko Solar, Chairman of the Port of Cork, among a number of other roles he has, and my colleague Mike Hayes, KPMG's Global Head of Climate, Decarbonisation and Renewables. So welcome, gentlemen. So where do we start across the broad agenda of carbon net zero renewables with a national, international and even a local focus today, given both your heritage? So, Mike. Thank you, Barry, and uh, welcome, everybody, for what should be a very interesting discussion with John Mullins from Amarinko and myself. John, lots of areas to cover, but I want to start off on the broad climate agenda. Um, you and I have been in this business for, for longer than we care to remember. But I have to say, in the last 18 to 24 months, climate has suddenly become the big issue, not just in our own organizations, but right across the globe. It's become a boardroom issue um, and a CEO issue as opposed to a sustainability issue. Do you agree that we've reached a turning point in terms of addressing climate change? And what do you think the future heralds? Well, absolutely, Mike. I think uh, right across the world, we're, we're seeing um, um, parties taking on the green agenda. Uh, we're seeing, in, I think now, the Green Party in Europe are in five governments. Um, so they're getting stronger. I think there's a demographical shift. I think younger voters, uh, you know, and again, you know, we're around for a long time. We probably believed in this uh, a, a lot, a lot, a lot, um, a, a long time before, let's say, what you see now, college students right up to 30 years of age. They're a demography that are essentially driving a political agenda, not alone just in Europe, but across the globe. I think we have seen weather events uh, marked. We've seen forest fires. We've seen hurricanes, typhoons. Um, we've seen a drought um, you know, in Australia, for example, it had a major impact uh, in terms of debts as well as uh, as, as just uh, climatic conditions. I, I think uh, right across the board, uh, we're seeing a, a political uh, renaissance in terms of uh, green is very much top of the agenda. And if you look at, say, in Ireland, there's probably three key things uh, outside of housing and just general health that people are looking at today. Uh, one clearly is COVID-19 and getting out of this pandemic. Uh, climate change is in there. And of course, Brexit is there. Uh, they're the three primary uh, uh, projects, in my view, long-term projects and hopefully one short-term uh, that actually the Irish government is working on. But we work in a whole number of countries, right through the Gulf, out to Thailand, Japan, um, in Egypt, in Jordan. Uh, we see it right across the board. Uh, there are um, real, there's real momentum uh, in all uh, political society and in society general, in general, to uh, to support the green agenda. John, you specifically referenced COVID nineteen. I know when the the crisis started, you know, I spoke to a lot of different people here in Ireland and around the world who said, you know, this is bad news for the climate agenda. It's going to set us back. You know, corporates in particular and governments are going to focus on COVID nineteen. I have to say, and I'm very pleased to say in my own experience, and I'd like to get your perspective, but actually the opposite is true. I think COVID-19 has had the effect of putting climate right back on top of the agenda. I think principally because governments and corporations have seen that it is a major systemic risk. And in the same way we found we were unprepared for COVID-19, the new sense I'm getting is that we, we cannot make the same mistake with climate. And if anything, I'm seeing greater urgency post-COVID-19, if we, if we can say that yet, than, than even prior to the pandemic. 
Well, Mike, I think there's a there's a number of factors at work. Uh, number one, um, there was real concern about supply chains at the very early stages of the pandemic. If the supply chains and oil and gas were in, interrupted across uh, uh, the OECD countries, that would have been of real concern uh, at a time when economies struggled to keep moving. Uh, I think um, there's no doubt about it that in terms of uh, weather-related uh, uh, renewables, that is wind and solar, I can definitely tell you that our assets have outperformed our budget in 2020. Um, they're COVID-19 proof. So if you're an institutional investor and you have a choice between investing in something that actually is going to be rocked by a pandemic and something that actually is not going to get impacted at all, and yet it meets the green agenda, the institutional investor is certainly going to side with the one that's got the least risk. And, and that's exactly what we have seen. Uh, I would have had the same concerns, Mike, in terms of what would COVID-19 do, certainly when we came out of March and into April. But there's no doubt about it that the response of the markets towards uh, renewable investment certainly have been more buoyant than they were actually prior to March. There has been a construction discontinuity uh, probably for a period of two months in most markets, primarily because of public health lockdown. But apart from that, since we got back into construction, uh, we have had no difficulties in meeting the agenda. Now, our budgets in construction may not be met this year. We might be out by two months and it'll go into 2021. But from an operating EBITDA point of view, there's no doubt about it that our assets are actually performing very well. To the point whereby some people have said, because we had less aviation, because we had less industry, we actually had better air quality. And as a result of better air quality, we had better irradiation from the sun. Now, that might be an old wives' tale, but, but when it comes to it, uh, there, there are elements uh, that, that uh, certainly uh, solar irradiation and wind speeds are not impacted by pandemics. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with all that, John, in fact, and I want to sort of delve into this a little bit in the, over the next number of minutes. But I think, you know, sp specifically for renewable energy, the future looks very bright. I think we're entering into an era where we're going to see more and more renewables. I think we're going to see government policy continuing to support renewables. We have the EU stimulus package, which strongly featured the Green Deal aspect, um, particularly around the decarbonisation of transport and the focus on hydrogen and, and offshore wind. Can I, I'll come to Amarinko in a few minutes, John, but more specifically in terms of what you're seeing around the world, do you agree with me that for renewable developers, it's a really bright future? And actually, there's lots and lots of opportunity to be got. Uh, absolutely. I mean, there was a time, Mike, when, when you and I started in this business that there were very few private equity players willing to actually support renewables. Um, primarily, I suppose, if you look at the genesis of some of the early companies that existed in wind and in solar, wind previously and solar most recently. The reality is that institutional investors now are actually supporting developers. They're getting in at the actual 101 uh, level, whereby if you have, let's say, a lease for a solar farm or a wind farm, institutional investors would like to get invested at that particular juncture, whereas before, they'd only come in after the thing has been commissioned and proven for about two years. 
So actually the risk appetite in the renewable sector has gone up immeasurably. And what you're now seeing is actually uh, probably every pension and insurance firm in the world wants a piece of this action. Allied to that, of course, you've got the responsible investment requirements. And of course, a lot of these companies are ensuring that they are showing their uh, pension investors and their insurance investors that they're investing in sustainable stock. Uh, And that's exactly what renewable development is all about. Um, Also, in addition to that, we have seen, Mike, as you well know, we've seen turbine, turbine heights go higher, We've seen blades getting bigger. We've seen solar modules becoming more efficient and effective. When we started the business in uh, 2013, solar modules were at about 230 watts in one module. They're now over 500 watts and they're bifacial. So when it comes down to it, we have seen technological change that has boosted the case for more renewable development. And in addition to that, we have seen um, in many sectors wind competing uh, with the long-run marginal cost of energy uh, where wind speeds are high. And we have seen in markets that we're working in, for example, Spain, Portugal, Oman, Egypt, Jordan, Thailand, uh, where there's no need for a subsidy. There's enough irradiation and the prevailing price of a solar module and an inverter will actually beat all comers when it comes to a new source of electricity. So with that reality, it is now actually in a lot of markets, both good for green and good for the economy to actually invest in competitive renewable sources. John, for me, it's a real sign of an industry maturing. What we have is developers who continue to develop. But the great thing is you can't develop, as you well know, without capital. And as you correctly point out, the capital markets have responded. They like this industry. And for me, one of the most profound changes, which is still in transition, is investors are prepared to accept merchant risk. You know, you and I have lots of experience of what, when we look back in hindsight, it was easy for investors. It was contracted revenues for a long period of time. All you had to do was get through all the various development milestones. Not an easy thing, but it was a very investable proposition. Now investors are looking at the reality in a post-subsidy world, and we're looking at the, at the advent of corporate PPAs, which are available to, up to a point. But more and more investors are starting to recognize that merchant risk is okay. We mm. grew up with it in the oil and gas industry, and there's no reason why it shouldn't work in renewables. So, John, you, you paint a very positive picture of where, where renewables is going globally. I want to just come back to Ireland, you know, and we've had lots of challenges in the Irish market over the years. Um, we've recently had the successful Res 1 auction, which solar in particular did well. But where do you think we are at in Ireland in terms of renewable policy and our ambition to get to 70% renewable energy by 2030? Well, I mean, Mike, you and I have been around, as I said, for a while, and, and we've always said that we were laggards. Even Leo Radko, when he was Taoiseach, said we were laggards when it came to renewables. Um, the reality is that I think uh, only because of letters coming from the European Union did Ireland actually wake up and say they're actually serious about fining us if we don't meet our renewable commitments. I think uh, certainly this new government uh, and probably the latter days of the last government took it seriously. But I could tell you since 2015, since Alex White put the white paper out there in terms of renewable penetration and meeting our targets in 2020, there has been the square root of nothing done right up to the point whereby 
the auction was uh, completed this year. Now, to be fair to Airgrid, they did an excellent job. Uh, it was very well marshaled and stewarded. Uh, they have to be commended. And I, 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 I had the opportunity to speak to Eamon Ryan recently and I commented uh, on that basis. Not because we won projects, but because it was efficiently run. Now, that is a template for the future. And if we can repeat that template as we go forward, we certainly will have a lot more renewable penetration. But, Mike, as you know, it's not without its uh, challenges. We have plenty of investors willing to come in. We have plenty of technology and developers available to come in. I would say the biggest issue uh, goes back to the early stages of my career, which is, is the grid available and how will the grid get built out as quickly as it needs to be built out to actually give us transmission and distribution capacity for the renewables that have won this auction to actually get on the bars and the renewables that are in the future auctions to get on the bars. That is the number one threat, in my view, to actually now meeting our commitments within Europe. John, I want to zero in on that point because I agree with you. Um, in Ireland, as in many other countries, the grid is very much seen as a national asset that needs to be owned by the public sector. But do you think we need to adapt our thinking and find a role for private investors to support the enhancement of the grid? Because as you say, we're not going to get to the level of renewable penetration without the right type of grid infrastructure. Well, I mean, you know, as you know, uh, prior to setting up Amarenko, I was chief executive of a, a gas distribution business. The reality is that there's no reason why a state company cannot actually get on with the job and build out exactly what is needed to be built out. Uh, they, they are paid well. They have a regulated, guaranteed regulated return on every cent that's invested in the market. I know this, you know this. I've been in this space for about 30 years. The reality is it actually is good business for ESB and ESP networks, as it is for Borgosh and Gas Networks Ireland, to actually invest in these assets because it gives them 40-year returns. So, so the reality here is that the bottleneck of grid capacity is going to have to be lifted. Secondly, I just wrote to the regulator in the last week, and I stated to the regulator that we're going to have to start benchmarking network costs in Ireland versus the rest of Europe. And I can tell you categorically that network costs in France are a fraction of what the network costs in Ireland are. And someone has to explain exactly why we have network costs as high as they are. That is a big issue for me. And because the bigger issue, quite clearly, is the delivery of the infrastructure that is promised under connection agreements. Because I can tell you, the, the vast majority of those connection agreements will be late. And that is the history lesson in this country thus far. John, you know, for me, I have to say, you know, in the public discourse on renewable penetration in Ireland, it's been very much seen as something that's going to cause some sort of economic burden. And I've always believed that's the wrong way to think about it. I think we need to think about renewables as a positive for our economy. Mm. We've seen the impact which a thriving offshore wind industry has had on the east coast of the UK and the east coast of Scotland. Why is it that you think Irish politicians have and civil servants have a negative perspective on what renewables means for our economy? Well, I, I think they're forever looking at the, the, the differential in the cost of a subsidy, but you know, very rarely do they look at the long-run economic cost uh, of, uh, uh, of fossil fuels. The reality is they now set an agenda already with carbon taxation going out to 2030 that will eliminate fossil fuels. So if you want to accelerate a, a higher penetration of renewables, 
add car- more carbon tax to fossil fuels, which they're about to do at six euros per tonne every single year between now and 2030. The reality here, Mike, is that um, we, we, uh, we, it's inevitable that there will be a crossover point in the future, particularly wind is very close to that crossover point, uh, mm. where wind is actually going to be cheaper than all comers in Ireland. It could happen, uh, maybe it might take 10 to 12 or 15 years, that solar could be cheaper than all comers in Ireland. But it still doesn't get away from the fact that if you put in fiscal... Uh, instruments such as carbon tax on the mix of generation in Ireland, there's no doubt about it that solar and uh, uh, wind-sourced electricity are actually going to be more economic. The problem is that the the people in who run the com- country in Merrion Street take a view that actually we need to make sure that electricity prices in the near term are, are low. Now, if you look at the outcome of the recent auction, and there's no indexation on those particular prices, right? No indexation. For the first time in Ireland, no indexation. You're actually seeing prices that are not that far off the wholesale price from a carbon-intensive uh, uh, mix. The reality is that by 2030, we may see a little peak, right, uh, in terms of the wholesale price. But in the longer run... As the actual assets have a longer life than their power purchase agreements, you will actually see marginal, marginally priced wind assets bidding into the market at near zero or just covering the operating cost plus a, plus a, a, a profit. So as time goes on, there's going to be an inflection backwards, actually, as the fleet gets older and as the new fleet comes on, becoming more efficient. So, you know, this is, this is strategic thinking, but regrettably... Um, you know, our country doesn't work on the basis of 15 to 20 year strategic plans. It works on, on election cycles and it works, it works on the basis of a year to year view. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you paint the cold financial realities over the longer term, why renewables are good. But that's even without taking account of the climate benefits we get from, from the, the level of renewable penetration we're talking about. And more and more, we have to educate people. I, th- I think it's just not the politicians and the civil servants. It's the people who vote these people into office. The community needs to understand the longer-term climate strategy here as well. John, uh, Mike, one turn... Uh, sorry, Mike, I was just going to say, there's, a, there's another way that we can actually get this moving as well. And I, I, I you know, in France, for example, we, we operate with a, a company called Lindopolis, right, which is a subsidiary of La Poste. And they get an opportunity. So citizens in, in, in France get an opportunity to invest in our solar farms on a junior debt basis, right, at, at around 5%. Now, at the moment, as you well know, deposits are at minus 0.5% in most banks, right? That's not the case in France. There's a bit of a restriction on that. But in Ireland, we're doing it. Um, you know, a 5% deposit for a savings account in any jurisdiction in Europe at the moment is extremely attractive. You have state-backed tariffs in uh, reliable technologies where essentially the junior debt holder, that is the savings account holder, will get 5% ahead of the original equity developer. Now, for me, this is a scheme that will actually enthuse citizens and people who've got some cash in the bank or cash in the post office to actually invest in these assets and support developers into the future. We have every intention in Ireland to raise such a fund uh, uh, for, as a junior debt retail fund 
And again, we're going to open up conversations with Unpost and with other organizations to see if we can actually get this type of product into the Irish market. That actually is another additional economic bounce for the people of Ireland to have an option to invest with developers in these assets over a five-year period and get 25% return on, on their assets. Um, I think that would be the holy grail, John. And in addition, it gives ordinary people an opportunity to participate on the climate agenda by by subscribing for these type of instruments. And I think, you know, more and more, we need, we need to bring that community to play in this sector. I want to turn, John, to the specific technologies. Clearly, I know you come very much from a solar background, but in a previous existence, you were instrumental in in the wind industry here in Ireland. Um, I want to get a perspective from you on two particular technologies and their relevance to Ireland. One is solar, and I can remember a time when I was very skeptical about solar in Ireland. You you and others have, have proved me wrong, and I'm delighted to see it. And we will have you know proper solar plants up and running next year as a result of the res auction. And the second one, which I've always been incredibly passionate about, is offshore wind. And I've, I've been very fortunate to be involved in that sector for over 10 years now seeing you know the realization of projects on the east coast but you know if i look at the program for government it, it offers real potential so i'd be very interested in your perspectives on those two technologies in the context of ireland well I, i'm not going to accuse you of being a doubting thomas uh, mike uh, uh, seven <laughs> years ago when when we established amarinko and i've been working successfully with you and kpmg for all of those seven years and, and hopefully will do so for some time what i can tell you mike is that when we looked at the first assets in cork they were looking economically at about 13.5 cents a unit. The average price five years on was 7.4. Okay? That gives you an indication of the reduction in prices for capital investment in solar technologies. Going back to the capacity increase, the intensification on the module, the bifacial aspect, the reduction in inverters, the probably reduction in transformers and power electronics that goes with that. You know, we're not at the bottom yet of where this pricing it can be or can get to, but certainly so the, 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 you know, the future is extremely bright uh, uh, for solar going forward because there are technological improvements as we go. And, and, you know, Mike, if we're sitting in the nursing home together in 20 years from now, and we look back and I said to you, do you know, there's going to be a new... They're not going to use silicon, actually, in 20 years from now. They're going to use some form of graphene or some form of uh, new compound. It's going to be, instead of being 19% efficient, it's going to be 35% efficient. You might laugh, right? But I can tell you... There's technologies like these already being tested for NASA. And actually, if you look at the history lesson on solar, where did the solar module come from? It came from NASA in the mid-50s. So, so the reality is that there are new technologies ahead of us in the solar space that are quite definitely going to move it to a different space, but it's going to have to be at economies of scale. And that's exactly what we've seen in China. As regards offshore, Mike, you and I were involved, uh, you know, in one of the first uh, offshore wind, uh, the Arklo Banks, if you remember, back in, oh, God knows when. Two indeed. It's a long time ago, Mike. Um, nothing has happened since then. And, of course, at the time, there was a lot of doubt about, about the technology. GE didn't, they were pulled away from it. They've got back involved again. And um, when you see engineers like GE pulling out of a sector and then they automatically they come back in again, you, that tells you that right they're now happy with the with the with the engineering. There's no doubt about it that 
offshore has an enormous role to play not just in Ireland, but right across all of Europe and across the world in terms of giving you very scalable, efficient uh, wind power, particularly in the context that it's becoming, as you know, Mike, more difficult to actually get a wind plant up and running uh, on an onshore setting. So, um, again, the challenges for offshore are going to be things like foreshore licences, transmission interconnection, transmission capacity, and interconnection, right? And those issues are not overnight issues to be solved. It's a lot easier to put a 5 megawatt solar farm in the middle of Cloyne than it is to put a 200 megawatt solar, uh, uh, offshore wind farm off the coast of Ballycotton because the amount of infrastructure needed is phenomenal. The amount of planning intensity, and you've seen it already, by the way, with respect to the Celtic interconnector from France coming into Nakraha. Um, you know, there are, there's a big debate in East Cork about where the actual uh, site for, for that particular um, converter station is going to be. So offshore wind is not without its challenges, but it is quite definitely that bridgehead to full penetration in Ireland. Uh, and in fact, there's no reason why by 2050 Ireland could not be a net exporter of offshore wind uh, into uh, Britain and into uh, the rest of Europe. Um, I'm conscious we've only got a couple of minutes left, John, and I want to turn back uh, the clock back uh, seven or eight years ago, um, maybe, maybe not quite that long, when I met you in Cork and you were talking about launching this new thing called Amarinko. We roll forward to 2020, and as you say, Amarinko is not just here in Ireland and France, but it's expanded into other parts of Europe, into Southeast Asia and the Middle East. Um, you know, I don't mind saying it's been a fantastic success story, and um, you know, hopefully um, it's got an incredibly bright future ahead. If there was one thing you would say that resulted in the success of Amarinko, what would you say that would be? Oh, Mike, I would say it's uh, it's it's absolute resilience when you hit a brick wall, um, because setting up a renewable development company is is uh, is is not easy. Uh, there are so many facets to it, um, but once you get momentum in that process. And I think, you know, they say lucky generals invest into, uh, you know, favourable wars. Um, reality is there's none more favourable at the moment than the green agenda. Uh, maybe at this stage we're going to reap the benefits. But, you know, what I'd say to you is that there were plenty of, uh, um, you know, hard days. As you well know, Mike, I would have spoken to you, particularly when we tried to raise a fund, if you remember the Section yeah. 110 uh, with a, a large bank in London and we failed miserably and we had to go on our hunkers and think about what to do next and we we built we built the company up one solar farm after the next we're now 25 or 26 solar farms after that we probably have I'd say 30, 35 solar farms um, uh, ready in the next 18 months uh, to, to be built out um, and, and the scale of the business, I mean, our, our, our attitude now is that we want to be a, an IPP uh, to build up balance sheets, to build up turnover EBITDA uh, so that I have an easier time with the KPMG auditors and I give the tax people in KPMG a harder time because they have to solve more problems for me. Uh, and then um, we, we hopefully might become an IPO candidate in the future, but that's a different day, right? Um, for us... It's about growing the business. And the beauty about it, I suppose, Mike, is that 
when you look at the business now and where, where, where we started, we gathered in your room back in 2013, we now probably have 23, 24 nationalities in the company. We've offices all over the world. We've opportunities coming out our ears. And we certainly have uh, the opportunity with our new shareholder, you know, Credit Agricole Group, and also with hopefully a new shareholder in the next number of weeks. Um, you know, we'll be driving the agenda and driving that bus forward and hopefully going into other markets. You never know if there's a change in regime in the United States, we might actually head over to the US uh, after Biden becomes president. If, if I can give an additional perspective, John, you've done something in building up Amarinko, which I have forever been telling other developers, but they haven't followed the example. And that is you have not held on to 100% equity. From day one, you've shared equity with the management team and you are always prepared to dilute, to actually create something much bigger and much more powerful, which I think means that even though you will always have a capital challenge, it's that openness to bring in other investors, I think has been a really, for me, one of the big reasons why Amarinko has been such a success story. Well, for me, Mike, I think uh, the philosophy is quite straightforward. I'd, I'd prefer to have 2% of something than 100% of nothing. And, and it's a very simple idea. I'm, I'm interested in the growth of the company that I founded. Uh, I, I'm not necessarily interested in absolute control. And the reality is, if you're interested in absolute control, you're going to starve your company of capital, number one, right? Mm. You'll have very hairy days, number two. And thirdly, uh, you'll end up actually in a situation whereby institution, institutional investors will have other options, like Amarenko, where they can get in and play at Topco, uh, play with, you know, get at the board of a company and shape that company into something that is going to be international, one of scale and one of opportunity in terms of whether it's going to be um, an IPO or whether it's going to be sold to a utility or an oil and gas company in the future. That's, that's where Amarenko yeah. is going. That's the reality of it. Mike, five years from now, uh, it's very likely I won't be in Amarenko because the job will have been complete in that regard. Well, it's, it's uh, you know, and uh, it's great for me to see and be involved with a company that started off with nothing seven years ago, and I see where it is today, and it's a fantastic example to other developers. Um, we'll bring this to, to a close, John, and so the final question really is, we're, we're here in 2020, we're dealing with a, a pandemic. Um, as we've discussed on this podcast, you know, the future for renewables um, is bright, the climate change agenda is alive, and, you know, eventually... I think everybody's going to get it and react. Look forward to 2050 and all. The, uh, let's not get into the definitions of what net zero means, but um, you know, both the EU, corporates and many other players in the sector are making these net zero commitments. How realistic do you think this is that we'll get there by 2050? Well, well can, I, can, I give you, can I give you a scenario play that I, I played out with the board directors of the Port of Cork, right? Just to describe what, what Cork Harbour looks like in 2050. The refinery will be doing hydro, green hydrogen. It will not be doing diesel and petrol. Okay? Gone from 2030. Yep. That's gone. Um, we will be probably uh, 3D printing electric cars and hydrogen cars. They will not be imported. Okay? We will um, certainly be reducing our fertilizer intensity. So everything I've said to you now already, by the way, means that the Port of Cork is going to have a very torrid time in 2050 because <laughs> it'll be importing and exporting nothing, right? 
Um, it will have containers, right, going forward and back. They'll probably be green hydrogen ships or at the very least LNG ships. There'll be no diesel ships on the waters in 2050. So that's just an example, right, of how fundamentally a business is going to change in 2050 in Cork Harbour, right? Purely on the basis that everything will be zero carbonized or offset, and as a result, you will find the movement of goods being reduced, and in fact, actually, the, the, you will find that the manufacturing of uh, goods and, uh, and cars, etc., will actually be decentralised because artificial intelligence and robotics is going to absolutely take over. We, I, you know, we might as well get used to the fact of lockdown, Mike, because in 30 years from now, what are we going to do when the robots and the artific- artificial intelligence mm. people are going to be running everything? So, so zero carbon is actually not just about the green intensity. It's actually, if you think about it, how technology is enabling all of that. And, you know, the vision is going to be much broader than just actually me putting solar modules up or offshore wind or whatever else and just replacing gas and, gas and, uh, gas and oil or coal. That, that's not the big story. The big story is how technology is going to fundamentally change how product is created and how it's delivered to our door in country. And that's going to be an interesting place. Well, I very much hope you and I will be there, hopefully not in nursing homes, John, by 2050. Well, we'll be in Crow Park supporting the rebels, I've no doubt. So, John, I need you to take out my virtual reality. (laughs) (laughs) On that very happy note, um, let's draw this to a conclusion. John, thank you for your insights. Um, um, Interesting and revealing as always, and uh, delighted to talk to you this morning. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Barry. Thank you, guys. And John, I've just taken off my virtual reality headset there as you described Cork in 2050 in the harbour. Um, it's a fascinating discussion for you both and the reservoir of knowledge that you both have in the sector to bring to life. Um, you know, the insight we got on the point of view, um, the challenge in the policy perspective and national policy, and, you know, even from an Ireland for finance perspective and how important sustainable finance is through that. Um, I think we've explored lots of themes this morning. And, John, I think the honesty and the ambition uh, fits with the entrepreneur um, theme of this series. Hopefully everyone's got something from it this morning and hopefully you look forward to joining the next edition. So, John, thank you so much. And, thank Mike, you. much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you.